0: Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, like, 89, 90, something like that of the podcast. I never remember what episode number it is, but uh, uh, needless to say, we're uh, not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically what we do on this podcast uh, so basically I invite an author on to discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, uh, something we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about, a little, have a little discussion about, and then uh, uh, at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast, if you hear about you, you uh, go out and purchase the book for yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Ill Literacy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Ryan T. Anderson. And Dr. Anderson Anderson is the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and is also the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. His groundbreaking work on marriage and religious freedom has been published by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal... National Review, National Affairs, The New Atlantis, uh, The Claremont Review of Books, and a multitude of of other popular and academic journals. And he has also been cited in two Supreme Court opinions. Uh, He is the author of Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. He is also co-author, along with Robert P. George and Sharif Gurgis, of What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a Defense, And lastly, he is the co-author with Alexander DeSantis of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which was published back in June by Regnery Gateway, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate
0: it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, thank you. So
1: um, what made you guys want to write this book? Was it – did you know that – uh, Dobbs was, uh, you know, coming along and that it just seemed like the, the opportune time to, uh, release a book like this, or, uh, did something else come into play? Uh, uh, like I said, what, uh, what made you, you and, uh,
0: Zan want you to, uh, r- write this book? Yeah. So, um, you're, you're exactly right in your, um, supposition that it was the Dobbs case. Um, mm-hmm. you know, last fall, um, when Mississippi didn't just ask the Supreme Court to uphold their 15-week law as being consistent with Roe and Casey, which was what you know many of the talking heads were advising them to do. They were like, look, just ask them to uphold your law as consistent with Roe and Casey. When Mississippi instead said uphold our law and strike down Roe and Casey, um, Alexandra and I, we could count to five. Uh, we thought there were five votes on the Supreme Court um, that would finally overturn Roe and Casey, mm-hmm. even without the chief justice, right? Which is as we saw, you know, the chief wanted to do that—that that middle uh, position, uphold the law but don't overturn Roe and Casey. Um, and what that meant, uh, what we realized was that look, if you overturn Roe and Casey, that doesn't outlaw abortion across the United States. Contrary to what the media, you know, there's been lots of kind of disinformation coming right. from the media about the you know, Supreme Court banning abortion. No, what it would do, um, and you know, uh, uh, what it has done is return this question to the democratic branches um, of government. Um, and that means that pro-lifers need to be in the persuasion business, right? We need to be persuading our neighbors, fellow citizens, um, to then put pressure on our elected representatives uh, to pass pro-life laws. Uh, we also need to persuade our citizens when there are ballot initiatives. You know, as we saw recently in Kansas, a ballot initiative that went the wrong way, unfortunately. And again, lots of media distortions and lies going on there. Uh, But then we also recently saw in Indiana, um, state legislators and then the governor, uh, they passed into law a good pro-life bill. The governor signed it into law. Uh, It'll prohibit, you know, the estimates are 95% of um, the abortions that have been taking place in Indiana will no longer take place, right? And so what we wanted to do with the book was um, provide a kind of um, a, a handbook to readers, to th- then be able to make the case for life uh, to family members, to friends, uh, to co workers, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we compiled the best arguments uh, the pro life movement has um, advanced over the past 49 and a half years, uh, you know, since the Roe decision, explaining not just why Roe was wrongly decided, but why, you know, as the subtitle of the book suggests, abortion harms everything and solves nothing.
1: Yeah. Uh, before we get to the book, real quick. Actually, I'm glad you brought up uh, Kansas and Indiana. What um, what should we make, uh, or especially Kansas? What should uh, what should we make of Kansas? And I know there's a lot of uh, you know the <laughs> uh, the pro-choice side, uh, the pro-abortion side is um, you know touting that as a, a major, major victory um, for uh, abortion rights, as it is. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what happened in Kansas? And again, what um, you know, what uh, people on the on the pro-life side of the uh, equation should uh, take from Kansas, any uh, lessons or, um, you know, things to do, things not to do in the future, that sort of
0: thing? Sure. Um, you know, a, a couple of things to say there. One is that what happened um, in Kansas was um, uh, a ballot initiative that was responding to a bad state Supreme Court ruling from mm-hmm. three years ago. So three years ago, just before the pandemic, um, state Supreme Court of Kansas, of all places, discovers a state constitutional right to abortion Um, there were activists who had brought the case teeing up the the justices to do this because they were um, concerned that we might get a ruling like dobbs so what uh, pro-life leaders in kansas did and this was before the dobbs decision so it's important to know the the technology here they wanted just to return the question um, in kansas to say the state constitution is silent on abortion it doesn't contain a, a right to abortion, nor does the state constitution prohibit abortion. So they wanted to have kind of a, an, a, an abortion-neutral ballot initiative that would then return the question to the democratic processes. What ends up happening is we get the Dobbs decision. You know, what is it? Six, seven weeks before uh, citizens go to the ballot to vote on. Uh, actually, probably not even. Six, I don't seven even think it's that long. Might be more like I think it's five or six yeah, weeks, yeah. right before. And then the media says this is a vote to ban abortion throughout Kansas, no exceptions for life of the mother, no exceptions for rape, no this, that, the other thing, Um, because it wasn't actually an abortion policy. It just was empowering the legislature to pass a policy. So on the one hand, you know, it's technically not lying to say that this spout initiative didn't say anything about an exception for rape or life of the mother because it didn't need to it wasn't actually prohibiting anything it was just returning the authority to make abortion policy uh, to the people and to the legislature and taking it away from uh, the court um it was also i think it was poorly worded um it was you know a a full paragraph long it was a little bit convoluted so it wasn't Mm -hmm. clear even from reading it what what, which way you should vote yes or no if you were pro-life it it, would just it wasn't um worded particularly well And then there wasn't a bill pending in the uh, legislature that um, would have accompanied the amendment, right? So that then people could point to, no, 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 what this ballot initiative would do, it would allow us in the state house to pass this bill, which would prohibit abortion, but would have exemptions for the life of the mother or for um, the case of rape, et cetera, et cetera. And so as a result, the left, um, which always has an advantage in these sorts of um, cases because of these sorts of uh, initiatives, uh, because they control the media. Um, the left was able um, to, you know, just, you know, more or less uh, lie about initiatives. And then it went down, you know, more or less a 60 to 40 a vote count. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think pro-lifers should uh, grow discouraged by this. Uh, I think they should learn the lessons of we need better drafted, better written Questions, if we're going to put it to a popular vote, like the average, I think someone, I I read somewhere saying that this was a 12th grade reading level, whereas um, most ballot questions should be written at a ninth grade reading level. That if you want them to be clear to Mm -hmm. your median voter, you know, a senior in high school is actually too rigorous of a reading level. Um, So we need to, you know, craft the ballot initiative questions more clearly. We also need to take away the talking points from the left, right? The left wants to say, oh, wait, wait, you pro lifers. You're going to, you know, um, prohibit abortion even when it's medically necessary to save the life of the mother. Are you pro-lifers? You're going to make a 10-year-old girl carry a baby to term even if she's been the victim of rape. Um, Take away those, um, uh, uh, the strongest kind of talking points for the left. You know, it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the percentages of abortion that take place. And then force the left to defend their actual policy, which is abortion on demand. Taxpayer-funded abortion on demand throughout all nine months of pregnancy, including um, up through the moment of birth with partial birth abortion. I mean, if, if, if you frame it a dichotomy between, you know, the left wants to have taxpayer funding abortions throughout all nine months of pregnancy, the right wants to have a reasonable uh, pro-life policy that'll protect uh, unborn children and protect their mothers and have sufficient protections for the life of the mother etc cetera, etc cetera. we win that uh, messaging uh, battle we win that vote count we win that popular vote we win that popular opinion uh, decisively right it's not even close at that point yeah
1: yeah it's uh, amazing the um, is a shift uh, among the uh, uh, the democratic party and the and the and the uh, pro-abortion activists and uh, uh, whatnot, I mean, remember, you know, back in the, back in the 90s with, like, uh, Bill Clinton's, you know, uh, abortions should be safe and legal and rare, uh, basically meaning that, like, well, you know, abortion's not uh, a great thing, but like, you know, we want women to have that option, uh, you know, just in case they absolutely, you know, feel they need to, you know, do something um, you know, like that, you know, but, uh, <laughs> and f- in like 20 years, it's gone for like, yeah, like we're not big fans of abortion, but, you know, we think women should have the right just in case to, you know, shout your abortion. And, uh, you know, now abortion is like a, a positive good, you know, uh, don't be ashamed of your abortion. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with abortion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's weird. It's almost like in a way it like mirrors, um, uh, the slavery issue in a way when, uh, you know, like the founding of the country, um, you know, even slave owners, you know, people like Thomas Jefferson and, and Madison and Washington, uh, you know, knew that slavery was, uh, a grievous wrong. Um, but they weren't. You know, you're sort of sure how to go about ending the process. And in, you know, another generation or two, it went from like, yeah, uh, you know, slavery is bad, but there's not much we can do about it, to, you know, people like John C. Calhoun saying, like, no, actually slavery is good, is a good thing, and here's why, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost, it's weird how uh, <laughs> abortion and slavery have almost, the, the arguments have sort of like dovetail each
0: other in a way. Yeah, no, I I think you're um, you're spot on with 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 the analogy, and it's an analogy that we we draw in the book in, in a variety of places. Um, you know, I'll I'll even back up and say you're also spot on with acknowledging the reality of how the rhetoric has changed from the yeah. left. Right? I mean, it, it, abortion being you know, think about the Clinton pregnancy, uh, Clinton <laughs> presidency, safe, legal, and rare to yeah. shout your abortion, right? We, we, we document that trajectory in the book. And I think there's a reason why. I mean, I think the safe, legal, and rare rhetoric, I think the the language that was used early on to support abortion of, of you know, this is a tragic necessity, right. you know, abortion's not a good thing, but sometimes it's the least bad option. Right. Um, though, 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 those justifications at least recognized, I think, um, the reality here that abortion is not a good thing, it's bad, right? Saying it's the least bad still acknowledged that it was a bad thing, and I think uh, pro-choice activists, uh, more I think accurately pro-abortion activists, um, recognize that that was giving too much um, ceding too much ground, ground yeah. to the pro-life side, right? And 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 I think they're correct about that, right? Because what what they were doing was recognizing that you know abortion is not like any other, you know, um, uh, medical procedure, the way that they now want to talk about it, right? Any other medical procedure, you know, taxpayer funded through Medicaid, Medicare, there's no height amendment attached to it. Um, There's nothing remotely controversial, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And that's where they want abortion to end up, right? And so so I think it was a strategic um, decision on their part to change the rhetoric. Um, On the question of, you know, analogies, to um, uh, 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 slave owner owning. I mean, there's there, there so many that we could talk about. We could talk about you know, the distortion of um, moral philosophy. I think here the Lincoln Douglas debates are really mm-hmm. instructive. Um, we can talk about the distortion of, you know, I'm personally opposed, but politically <laughs> for choice, which is right. very on point with Lincoln Douglas. Yeah. Um, but also means that any time that we as a nation um, and we as a people throughout human history have denied personhood uh, or denied humanity to another class of human beings, denied personhood to another group of people, we've never looked back with anything other than horror. Um, and I think that's the fundamental underlying reality here. Um, the science is um, you know, not only clear, it's indisputable about when that new life of a human being um, begins. Um, and so either you're gonna deny the science say it's not a human being or you try to be more sophisticated and you say well it's a human being but it's not a human person right the peter singer style argument so you respond to both sets of yeah yeah but but it never ends well for for the side that is dehumanizing or depersonalizing
1: yeah it's the retreat into metaphysics um over you know what is personhood and all that stuff just seems uh it just never just been very persuasive with me i remember (laughs) <laughs> I think Kevin Williamson, uh, or somebody at National Review had a thing, uh, you know, about like the, 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 you know, the personhood argument or whatever like that. And he's like, well, what is it that's in, you know, it's, a, it's not like it's a rutabaga or a toaster right. and all of a sudden it, you know, it turns into, uh, you know, you flick your f- fingers and it turns into a baby. I mean, it's a, it's a human, it's a viable human person, uh, from this moment forward. And, um, yeah, so uh, sort of on that. So why don't you talk about um, sort of uh, not just the biological thesis, but the moral thesis uh, for the sure. for the right to life?
0: Yeah, I mean, so so we, I mean, this really gets to the heart of um, you know, I, I from from what I know of the Heartland Institute, you know, th- things that are also near and dear um, to your hearts, and it's 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 the uh, second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, right? We hold the you know the there's a the preamble. The second paragraph is the one that many people quote as if it's the first paragraph. It says, we hold these truths mm-hmm. to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that amongst these are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, if you believe that, and, and, and I do, um, that we're all created equal, endowed by God with certain rights, including the right to life, um, you have to deny those things to support abortion. You have to say that the child in the womb is not created equal, it's somehow less than um, the rest of us, and that the child in the womb is not endowed by his or her creator with the right to life, because what every abortion does, it's the intentional killing of an innocent human person um, made in the image and likeness of God, if you want to use like the ex- ex- explicitly uh, biblical theological language, or you can use the kind of philosophical theology at the heart of the American founding um, endowed by the creator with inalienable rights. Right. Uh, and so the moral thesis is that human beings are valuable in virtue of who we are. Uh, so it's intrinsic worth, intrinsic dignity, not in virtue of what we can do, which would be instrumental worth um, everything else in the world. We value for its instrumental use to us, right? If, if you have trees, They're valuable because they provide shade. If they become more valuable for providing firewood or lumber, you cut them down. If you have chickens, they're valuable because they lay eggs or they're valuable because you can make chicken Parmesan, right? And and, Mm. and if they stop laying eggs, you might turn them into chicken Parmesan, right? And so you can see like why it is that you value. That's not how we view people, right? We don't value people for what they can um, do for us. Many governments have gone wrong by viewing their citizens as just cogs in the wheel right you're valuable as a citizen only if you're productive only if you're producing the gdp or you're serving in the army right that's not how we should view human beings it's not how we should view our own children it's not how we should view fellow citizens um, it's what sets um, human worth apart from other worth whether it's other life forms you know we value animals other animals differently than how we value the human animals how we etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. but all. All which is to say um, abortion directly undermines um, the very founding principles of the nation, um, which is why it's always outrageous to me whenever I hear um, a pro-abortion activist say that pro-life legislation is, quote, imposing your morality on me or imposing your religion on me. I'm like, this actually goes to the very heart of what um, the American Project is about.
1: Yeah, it's – yeah, I've been – Uh, we've been hearing that a lot lately you know get your theology you know off my uterus or (laughs) whatever Uh, um, but it's it's much much more than a religious issue and um, you know I would think most people I don't know um, or I at least a a very large plurality of people who are pro-life I would think come to that position without any sort of um, uh, uh, theological considerations or, um, you know, just because it's just sort of what they can see in front of their face. Like, well, what happens in this? And like, well, this is a procedure and we do this procedure and at the end of the procedure, you know, the, the baby is no longer alive and people would say like, well, okay, well, that's not correct. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this has been entirely framed or it's... I think it's purposely being framed as something that it's, uh, you know, that this is just like some sort of like uh, Christian theocratic position to be pro-life, you know, and uh, that's not the case. You know, a lot of, um, you know, what really led me to the uh, pro-life position, I'm I'm sure you're familiar with Nat Hentoff. Uh, Of course. uh, Yeah. They used to be the uh, very famous uh, jazz critic was a long time critic at the uh, village voice and he's not a man of the right in uh, any way shape or form but he was still um, uh, pro-life and uh, very uh, profoundly and thoughtfully pro-life and his uh, uh, and his writings came from a secular perspective and uh, uh, you know he framed his arguments among a, you know uh, secular arguments and they, to me they were very persuasive um but yeah like I said I just think that uh I know it's being pushed that way uh either out of just ignorance of the of the pro-life position or whether it's being done uh, maliciously which you know probably part of that too um I don't know but there's there's much more uh you do not have to be uh you know a Believing and practicing Christian to be um, uh,
0: pro-life. No, that's exactly right. Um, what we point out in the book is that, you know, the three core theses for the pro-life movement uh, is that a new human being comes into existence at the completion of fertilization, right, at conception, which is a scientific thesis. It's indisputable to my mind. Um it's empirical evidence. It's verifiable. The ultrasound reveals this, et cetera, et cetera. Second thesis is that you know all human beings are are equal. We have intrinsic worth and dignity. And then the third thesis is that government exists to protect natural rights, to promote the common good, uh, understood as at the very least prohibiting lethal violence against innocent human beings. right? So, so we we could have other debates about how extensive or how um, limited, the role of the state is, at the very least, it's a justified purpose of the government to protect natural rights and to protect against lethal violence against innocent people. None of those three theses is distinctively religious. Mm. Right? The, the thesis about when human beings begin, the thesis about our intrinsic worth and dignity and equality, or the thesis about the role of the state. Uh, so you need not be a theist. You need not be a Christian um, to believe these things. I do think, however, that ultimately, right, if you want to get down to bedrock, if you want to get, you know, all the way down to like the foundations, um, theism, and in particular, I think uh, to the the Judeo-Christian uh, theological traditions um, are going to provide the ultimate foundation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so, in a piece that I wrote uh, for First Things, I said, "Look, the pro-life um, argument on abortion is no more religious, but it's also no less religious." Um, than the pro-life position on other forms of unjustified homicide, right? And so whatever argument it is that um, uh, explains why we have laws against adult homicide, that same argument explains why we should have laws against fetal homicide. And if a secularist wants to say that, you know, from a position of secularism, you know, he or she can't fully defend laws against adult homicide, so much the worse for them. But it requires no special you know, theological premise or theological argument um, to get from, it's the role of the state to protect uh, innocent adult human life from unjust violence to say it's the same exact role of the state to protect innocent unborn human life Mm -hmm. from unjust uh, violence. Um, And so, you know, it's kind of where, you know, their argument both proves too much and proves too little. It's actually, I think, it's an unwitting um, uh, criticism of secularism you know at the end of the day right. the natural law has a law giver
1: right yeah all right well uh we're getting close to the end of the podcast already can't believe it um so uh just sort of i guess wrapping up on this there's <laughs> so much in the book i want to talk about but uh you know you do what you can Um. Uh, so obviously we know the the most fundamental harm of abortion is to the unborn child um you know that's you know pretty obvious but um you know, supporters of abortion say it's important for women to have the right to the abortion. It's a good option for for them to have. It, you know, it, it levels the playing field with men uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, career opportunities and those sort of things or just in their freedom to live their lives, how they want to live their lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is that necessarily true? Is an abortion a boon to women or does it actually do them
0: harm? Oh, it's been terrible for women. The Second chapter of the book, first chapter of the book is how abortion harms the unborn child by killing the unborn child. Second chapter of the book is how abortion harms women. Um, and, And, you know, we make a variety of arguments there. We look at the immediate kind of like short term, immediate physical harms to women. We look at the long term physical harms to women. We look at the immediate and long-term emotional and psychological harms to women, um, both of which, physical harms and psychological harms, um, chemical abortion, abortion pills, actually have increased rates of uh, negative outcomes. The reason I mention that is because more and more abortions are moving from surgical forms of abortion to chemical forms of abortion. Um, But then the the other thing we do in that chapter is we, we, we borrow... Um, a basic argument that our colleague at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, um, Erica Bakiaki, has made. Um, and she says, look, there's a reality in human um, life. It's a reality of actually across the male species of an asymmetrical form of reproduction. Men and women, um, it takes two of us to reproduce. But the roles that we play in reproduction are asymmetrical. And what we've done um, through abortion is we've tried to say that in order for women to be equal to men, they need to engage in sex, in education, in higher education, in the marketplace, as if they are men, Uh, which means sterilizing their bodies and, if necessary, killing their unborn children. That rather than actually structuring our laws, our culture, our market, our education system around the reality of there are two equal ways of being human. To equal ways of being embodied—a male and a female way—we're taking my way of being human as the norm, and then we're structuring our society as if my wife's way of being human is somehow defective. Mm. Um, and so the long, the, the the big picture cultural harm of abortion uh, is that it's um, it's predicated on my wife's body somehow being defective, which is why all of the original. Uh, women's rights leaders right the suffragists people like susan b anthony right this is why the largest pro-life group in america is titled you know the susan b anthony list Mm -hmm. Um, all those original women's rights leaders understood that abortion was bad for women Uh, that's why they were all pro-life they saw exactly what it would do it would it would allow men to use women as objects for sexual gratification it would allow men to walk away uh, from their sexual partners, uh, to not care either for the mothers of their children or for those children. By saying her body, her choice, it actually didn't empower women. It empowered men to say her problem, not my problem. Uh, and so we go through in that second chapter, I think it's, you know, it's like 30-some uh, pages, they're just documenting you know, study after study of these kind of empirical, physical, and psychological harms, but also helping people see that the the big picture cultural harm here of how abortion was, is really not only predicated on uh, my body being the normal way of being human, but it also then fosters. And um, uh, so it's not only predicated on this, but it then um, um, builds up, deepens a corrupt culture in which my body is the norm and my wife is somehow defective. Right, okay.
1: All right, well, said so we're getting towards the end here. So I um, guess we'll end on a question uh, I normally ask everybody that comes on the podcast, and that's, um, you know, what, uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's the, one, uh, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from reading it?
0: I think the one thing that um, any reader should, should take away from this is that uh, the past 50 years, we've been perpetrating a gross form of injustice, uh, an injustice to the unborn children, an injustice to their mothers. Uh, An injustice, in particular, to people who are already marginalized in society. Uh, we talk about the the sad realities of race-based, sex-based, and disability-based abortions. Uh, abortion um, literally tears apart the bodies of unborn children. It has figuratively torn apart the body politic of the United States. It's harmed everything it's touched. It's solved nothing that it promised uh, to set out to solve. Um, And what this means is that we should all be very confident um, uh, um, in bearing witness to the truth, right? Bearing witness to um, uh, the the truth of that unborn child and the worth and dignity, the the truth of the mother um, and the relationship that she already has with her children. And therefore we should be confident in building up uh, a pro-life culture and pro-life laws. Um, The the response here should be one of action uh, where we actually try to, uh, reform our laws, reform our culture um, to love both a baby and mother.
1: All right. Well, very well said. Uh, so before we go, is there anything uh, else you want to plug? Oh, actually, um, tell everybody about the uh, the uh, Ethics and Public Policy Center and the important work you guys are doing there.
0: Sure. So uh, we are a uh, D.C.-based think tank uh, focusing, as our name suggests, um, on ethics and public policy Um, We we are an explicitly Judeo-Christian think tank, one of the few kind of D.C.-based think tanks that um, uh, draws explicitly from the theological traditions that went into the American founding. And so, you know, we look at both um, theology and philosophy, the natural law tradition, the common law uh, tradition, and we have, you know, people working on a variety of issues. Uh, we have one of Justice Scalia's former clerks heading up our Constitution program. We have John Paul II, uh, you know, papal biographer, heading up our Catholic Studies program. We have people doing work uh, on bioethics, people doing work on um, HHS, people doing work on technology and human flourishing, uh, gender identity issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, we really try to do scholarship on um, the underlying moral and ethical questions that matter most uh, for human flourishing all
1: right great well thank you very much uh yeah and again the book is tearing us apart how abortion harms everything and solves nothing um really really enjoyed the book you know as much as you can enjoy a book (laughs) that's uh on a topic that's you know this sort of um I uh, guess, so uncomfortable to, uh, you know, mull around in your head and just, uh, you know, have to sort of, uh, you know, marinate in, um, you know, but the, it's a very, very, uh, uh, very, very thoughtful book. Uh, again, uh, as Dr. Anderson said, you know, they get into the uh, the first couple chapters of the book go into the harm done to the child and to the mother, but, uh, you know, there's chapters that go over how uh, abortion has corrupted the... Uh, our medical institutions, uh, you know, the the uh, our uh, you know our, our democratic institutions, uh, the judicial nomination process, how it's corrupted the culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, really uh, very informative, very um, well thought out and well argued book, and uh, I highly, highly recommend it to anybody out there that's interested. Make sure you go out and get a copy. And again, uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you very, very much for uh, coming on the podcast and uh, discussing. Uh, discussing this uh, uh, most wonderful of topics <laughs> with me. I really well, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And uh, again, if you uh, like this podcast, please uh, consider leaving us a five-star review and share it with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our uh, Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. You can always reach out to us there. You know, send us a uh, send us a DM, give us a follow. You know, that all that sort of stuff. If you have any questions or comments or whatnot, um, our what's the, what's the handle? Yeah, illbooks uh, uh, at illbooks at i l l books uh, is the Twitter handle. So yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.